0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keen the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. What are the 10 greatest books that reflect America? Maybe not great books, sometimes not so great. What are the books that define America? This is a question that my friends at C-SPAN are asking themselves. They're running a 10-week show on books that shaped America. Each week uh, focuses on a book. Uh, We did a show last week with the presenter of the show, Peter Slen, who's also um, an executive producer at C-SPAN. The first book was Thomas Paine's Common Sense. And now we're moving on to the second book uh, in books that shape America, a book that all Americans should... Uh, be familiar with. They're, of course, familiar with uh, common sense. Um, Payne's great book, The Federalist Papers, a book that we all had to read for better or worse as school children. Uh, Peter, how well did you know? Um, the Federalists was it as were, were you as bored by them when you were a teenager as I was? I was as confused by them
1: as you were as a teenager, which means that what. What was really their import? The Constitution had already been ratified by several states at the point that uh, Hamilton, Madison, and Jay were writing the Federalist Papers and publishing them in newspapers. Did they impact the ratification of our Constitution? Eh, Probably. Did they get pushed into... The constitution a bill of rights yes which we just take for granted but the the fight over the bill of rights was uh remarkably hot back in 1787 88 so um but at the time when they were published or when i first went through them and learned about them i was i was confused why were they important if they weren't the law of the land why did i care well they very much established who we are and what our constitution is about.
0: Yeah, I absolutely share that. Um, growing up in England, we read the Federalists, but of course the great divide in England was between uh, the monarchists and the parliamentarians, the cavaliers and the roundheads, Cromwell and the, uh, the crown of England. And people often joke, uh, everyone fits into one of those categories, either you're for the king or you're for parliament. I you think the same is true of Americans, that they're either, when it comes down to it, federalists or anti-federalists, and that might be a better way of determining the political landscape than left or right and Democrats and Republicans?
1: Well put. Um, however, one of the federalist papers that Madison wrote warned against factions in, in our society. And he talked about the fact that, in a sense, and this is how I interpret it, this is my interpretation, it was, you know what, maybe the two party or the, the lesser, you know, the bigger tents work, because these factions are going to tear us apart. That's my interpretation of what he had to say.
0: So let's get to the book. Tell us a little bit about the background, uh, when it was written and who it was written by. Of course, it wasn't written by a single author. It wasn't. It was published in three newspapers
1: in New York in 1787 and 1788. Just remember now, September 1787, the Constitutional Convention approved the Constitution of the United States. We had finished the war, the war had been finished for a couple years, we were being governed by uh, the second constitutional convention at this time, John Hancock was the president of that, and these essays started appearing in November, two months after the constitutional convention approved the constitution. So this, and several states had already approved, ratified the constitution at this point. So as the Library of Congress says, this is probably the most significant American contribution to political thought. And that's what this was about. And so Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, future president, and John Jay, who was governor of New York, I believe. Oh, God, I hope I got that right. Um, Were the three writing days. Hamilton wrote most of the 85 essays, uh, Madison about a third, and John Jay five. Now, was John Jay insignificant? No. John Jay was ill at the time. John Jay was a more behind-the-scenes type guy. Alexander Hamilton, of course, was an out-there type guy.
0: And uh, so the three of them... So so out there, Peter, that they even made a musical about him. And do you know what, Andrew? We even used a
1: piece of video from that musical to show how the Federalist Papers, and Hamilton got into the zeitgeist, and we asked our guests, Colleen Sheehan of Arizona State University and Judge Gregory Maggs, who is on the Supreme Court of the Armed Forces here in the States, if Hamilton affected, impacted, that musical impacted how people understand the Federalist Papers and what they know about it. And the the answer was a resounding yes. So when it gets into popular culture like that, um, you can look at it two ways. Number one, oh, we could sniff at it and say, how dare they dumb it down? Or you can say, guess what? More people are being exposed to these ideas. So,
0: well, That's what great books do, Peter. They expose people tackle. to big ideas. Um, you mentioned earlier, Peter, in, a, in an understated sort of C-SPAN way that you won the war, we won the war. What, what was that? Uh,
1: we call it the Revolutionary War over here in the United States. Uh, I'm not sure what you call it um, in London, but uh, it it had ended in 1783 with General Cornwall's um, uh, surrender at Yorktown, about two hours from Washington here. So it, we went from 83 to 87 before we got a constitution Um developed and ratified and before the Federalist Papers started coming out. So the war was already four years, four years behind us at that point. And And it it is worth
0: noting that America always defines itself as the first democracy, whether that's true or not, is really neither here nor there. But it was certainly amongst the first democracies. And the model that it was developing, the idea of defeating a colonial power and declaring independence and writing, shaping its own constitution and government. This was untested. No one knew what they were doing. They were inventing it as they were going along, weren't they, Peter?
1: They were, and they were testing out new ideas. I mean, one of the things that Alexander Hamilton wrote was whether or not an island should be governing a nation and the importance of... You know, moving beyond that and the uniqueness, I think, Mm -hmm. of the American experiment, which it still is today, is that they took it and really invested in the grassroots, in a sense, in the people. And it wasn't a top-down type democracy. Now, the argument was Federalist versus anti-Federalist, strong government, strong central government versus more or less states' rights. And I'm really dumbing this down. And real scholars of the Federalist papers are gonna uh, write in and and say you have a really dumb guest on. Um, But Hamilton, Madison, Jay, all strong Federalists. So they were the ones that were really pushing for for the strong
0: federal government. So that
1: this experiment could be a success.
0: Peter, would it be fair to say that they were all for strong government, but in different ways, That Hamilton was much more focused on economics. Madison on, on, on politics is of course most famous for his remark about men not being angels. Hamilton is perhaps best known for support of a national bank. Were they on the same page, so to speak, Madison and Hamilton?
1: The three of them were generally, I would say, 85% on the same page. And they made a point of combining their alikeness into the Federalist Papers, and they were going to push for that 85%. Hamilton, if I'm getting this correct, was not in favor of the Bill of Rights, You know, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. Uh, freedom from search and seizure freedom you know uh, the second amendment things like that the first 10 amendments of our constitution and he did not see it as necessary to have that bill of rights and i believe it was hamilton um and but they came around to that and that was was that a victory for the anti-federalists in a sense yes yeah that people were 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 given that Power to begin with rather than have it innate, as Mr. Hamilton
0: argued. We are speaking with Peter Slen, an executive producer at C SPAN and the presenter of a wonderful new series on C SPAN called uh, Books, the 10 Books That Shaped America. We're going to hopefully do weekly shows with him talking about these books. Last week we did Common Sense, this week it's The Federalists. Um, Peter, What about these so-called anti-federalists looking around the Internet, which is uh, still a a warren of of anti-federalism, I guess. uh, Some people even argue that the term anti-federalism is a misnomer. Is there such a thing as or was there such a thing as the anti-federalists? And can we can we define what these people thought? And I'll tell you how
1: I said it on the program. I again, tried to simplify it a little bit, and I used the, the term states' rights. And that was, it's a little bit misleading, but there was some truth to it, that the anti-federalists were, hey, these are rights that man, i.e. the Bill of Rights, have, and that we should enunciate them. And a strong federal government is going to trample on the states in the Union. Uh, George Mason, Patrick Henry, a couple of the, the uh, anti-federalists and they're the ones who pushed for the Bill of Rights. So yeah, we use these terms, Andrew, and eh, to help, help us to understand. You earlier mentioned several different factions in England the roundheads, the Cromwells, the et cetera, of uh, the monarchists. We we're a little simpler over here at the States. And we we like to be able to have a binary choice, if it as it were, and to say that you are either for or against you are a federalist or an anti federalist. Well of course there's there's a hundred hundred thousand different iterations within each of those categories.
0: The term states' rights, Peter, now has an an ominous series of connotations in terms of 19th century and and slavery. Of course, there were many quote-unquote American slaves who weren't included in this conversation. How, uh, given the history of slavery has has shaped American history, certainly in the beginning, how influential was that in terms of the federalist, anti-federalist debate?
1: It had a role. It wasn't something we discussed in the program, but you're right. The term states' rights has a, has a connotation today that wasn't the same as it was back in 1788 um, for a lot of people. But yes, it does have, it's a loaded term, I would say. And it wasn't quite the same back then. The issue of slavery did play a role in this debate, but it was not the center topic as it was even 10, 20 years later.
0: But uh, the slaves, of course, didn't participate in the debate about what America would be when it became independent. It was landowning white males. So women were also excluded. Um, landowning white males. Uh, and what about Jefferson? Jefferson, of course. If, along with Madison and, and, and Hamilton and I guess Washington, the most famous founding figures in American history was of course notoriously also a slave owner. W- where was Jefferson on this? I, my suspicion always has been that he certainly was in some way sympathetic to the Anti-Federalists. Uh, he
1: was aware of the Federalist Papers in advance. He was given copies of them in advance, I believe. And he was supportive of what Hamilton, Madison, and Jay were doing, and he saw the importance of it. So that's it. You've got on top of this, you've got politics. You know, you've know, you got the factions. You've got, OK, how do we make this successful? Um, Keep those in mind as well as the game is being played. And we showed on the program a letter from Thomas Jefferson to James Madison saying, I have seen the papers and basically keep going.
0: You mentioned earlier that in your view, and you're certainly not alone here, that the Federalist Papers are the major contribution, uh, American contribution to the history of political thought. What is the Federalist Papers saying, which hadn't been said before, which contributes to this great canon of of political thinking?
1: The call for the union, you know, the confederation of states. The call for the union of those states into a larger, stronger federal government, the, the overt structuring to prevent a monarchy from happening, I think was important, especially in relation to our relationship with England, um, that was part of their desire. I think the Bill of Rights, even though it was not something that Hamilton, Madison, and Jay necessarily advocated for at the beginning, having that included, I mean, that's just a, that's a given in our world over here today. So I think the rights of man, individual rights, was something that we could say is, is a unique feature of the Federalists. Uh,
0: Peter, what about the, the the Madisonian notion of faction and the fact we're not angels and that we need politics? Perhaps if we were angels, we wouldn't need politics. And we have to recognize that for better or worse, we're all self-interested and we organize into groups of similarly self-interested uh, individuals.
1: Well, and I'm looking very quickly for that we have the quote. I have the, we use that quote that uh, men are not angels. And I wanted to read the quote so we could, we could uh, do, do, do. Well, I apologize. I'm having trouble. Finding, here we go. Federalist 51, James Madison. Ambition must be made to counteract ambition. The interest of the man must be connected with the constitutional rights of the place. It may be a reflection on human nature that such devices should be necessary to control the abuses of government, control the abuses of government. But what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. And this, if you take it it from week to week.
0: It's, It's one of the great sentences in the history of political thought.
1: It really is, and it builds. If if you remember Thomas Paine last week, it kind of builds on what Thomas Paine was saying.
0: Would so Paine agree, on. though? Didn't Paine think that we had an angelic quality?
1: No, no, no. I, I I don't think anyone was was oh naive is a strong word um, that anyone was seeing man as as good at all times. He 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 did see. In a sense the goodness of man and that they could self-govern and I think this is a continuation from Thomas Paine's common sense in that regard however he also Thomas Paine said the same thing which was hey there's got to be you know government is necessary to control
0: the outrages but no more. But Peter there were people in America perhaps Christians who believe that we could escape politics, we could be angels and that America could be an experiment in this kind of utopian community building without laws or power?
1: Well, if you go back to uh, the Puritans when they came over in the 1600s, I, I think there was that thought of utopianism and we'll all just get along to get along. Um, And we know what happened there, you know, all of a sudden, well, this abuse happened, this happened, this happened. We must have laws, we must have structure. And it's self-government. But at the same time, I don't think, has a society, Andrew, ever been created that has maintained that utopianism that we all have the same interests, we're all running the same race. I don't think so. And that's, I think, where these guys, the Federalists, Thomas Paine, saw that government was a quote, unquote, necessary evil.
0: Peter, the book now is 250 years old, it's still very relevant, you're running, um, you, you ran a show about it this week. We uh, we had a show last week with two very prominent uh, Harvard University political scientists, Steven Levitsky, Daniel Ziblatt. They have a new book out on the tyranny tyranny of the minority. They argue that the whole constitution, uh, the everything about the American tradition, needs to be rewritten. If we, I know this is a silly idea, but I'm still going to ask it. If we could bring. Jay and Madison and and, and Hamilton back to life. Do you think that they would be clinging to the the supposed constitutional truisms, the the piousness of the constitutional lobby in this country? Or or was there something in the Federalist Papers that recognized that there was going to always be a need for change and the Constitution itself should be um, a, a document of plasticity.
1: Oh, wouldn't it be fun to bring back those guys, to bring back Ben Frank, Franklin, just to show him the world today and and let him see the technology. Do I think Ben Franklin would, would be surprised when he saw an airplane flying? No, I don't think he would be. I think he would say, yes, that's exactly, that's exactly what we knew would happen. Um, God. 250 years later, I mean, if you think about the world in 250 years, do you think that you would, your ideas today would be appropriate? Do you think that you structured yourself and your views to survive for 250 years? Um, One more quote talking about, and this kind of goes to flexibility in a sense. It is evident, this is from Federalist number 39, it is evident that no other form would be reconcilable with the genius of the people of America, with the fundamental principles of the revolution, or with that honorable determination, which animates every votary of freedom to rest all our political experiments on the capacity of mankind for self-government. So there was a lot of faith in people to adjust, to take these principles, to take these core principles, which are still in effect today. So there was some genius by these guys. Um, And expand, modify, keep all of the above.
0: Uh, Let me revise the question. Did these guys realize they were writing an an, an enormously important document? I mean, they weren't even thinking that they were writing a book, which is a collection of essays.
1: Right. The book wasn't published until uh, 1788, I believe. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a barn burner of a bestseller. I think we can say that safely. Because these essays were published, they were talked about, they were, they were written in a sense for the common man. I mean, the language is sometimes difficult for us to, to get our hands around because of, the, um, because of the phrasing, et cetera. But they were written for the common man. Um, and they did have a sense that they were not writing for that day. They were not writing contemporaneously. They were writing for, hey, these are the foundations
0: These are the building blocks of what we're trying to create here. I know you had a lot of editorial debate to use a polite word, a euphemism for which books to put in and which not. Um, I'm guessing this book was pretty much guaranteed. Did anyone argue that The Federalists weren't one of the 10 books, most important books in American (sighs) history?
1: No, I'm just reviewing the list from that time period. We had other selections, Ben Franklin, Noah Webster, Again, we broke this down into 50-year time periods, so we weren't just focusing all 10 books on more contemporary books. Um, Those were a couple of the others that we had in this time period, and the Federalist was pretty much a given that we should be doing this one.
0: That's great. What do we got coming up? We'll we'll, we'll turn this into a weekly thing, Peter. What do we got coming up next week? Well...
1: The two books that we did the first two weeks were basically the foundations of America.
0: Common Common sense and
1: federalists. Now we're off to the expansion of America and we're doing the journals of Lewis and Clark. Meriwether Lewis, William Clark, traveled from basically from Philadelphia or Washington to the Oregon coast on the Pacific. 8,000 miles back and forth using the Missouri (laughs) River Thomas Je- this was Thomas Jefferson's baby, it was his brainchild, and they mapped the United States. They went into this uncharted territory, and as Meriwether Lewis writes, the first time that, and this is the quote, civilized man will step foot. So obviously the use of the word civilized we're going to be talking about in, in the next week's show. But these guys went back and forth for 28 months. And they brought their journals back, gave them to Ben Franklin, 5,000 pages worth of journals. And that got turned into a book again. They came back in 1806. The book was not published till 1814. Again, not a barn burner, but what we learn from them and what was developed by them at the time, the cartography alone, was remarkable the map they went out with was basically here's east coast and go and blank and there's a lot of blank in there that they filled in um that had not been mapped and categorized etc so it was a it was a very important journey and it fit in with thomas jefferson's goal of expansion i mean he he did the louisiana purchase for god's sakes in 1803 doubling tripling the size of this country we're buying you know land from the french <laughs> it's there's all sorts of issues to deal with uh, we'll
0: talk about uh, it next week from politics to geography uh, i i have to admit i wouldn't have expected this book to show up uh, history of the expedition under the command of captain lewis and clark it'd be an interesting conversation peach i'll look forward to talking next week best of luck with you and uh congratulations on the series it's excellent
1: all right andrew